You go ahead and read from 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and then I'll pray. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? Father, this morning as we acknowledge that we are in Communion Sunday, we want to acknowledge that we have um, smaller children with us who are not used to being here, Lord, but we are glad that they are here. They are part of our family here at Crosspoint. We ask that you would bless them especially as we listen to your word, that you would speak to their hearts, that you would begin that wonderful work that every parent in here, I'm sure, is hoping for and trusting you for, that you would shape their hearts to know and to truly believe that Jesus is the Christ, that they may be born of God as well. Lord, for the rest of us, we look this morning to you to find hope for victory, hope to overcome the world that is crushing and pressuring us very heavily, perhaps this morning in many different ways. Lord, indeed, as we have already sung, there is no one like Jesus. And we want to lift his name up now as we consider your word. We thank you as well, Lord, that your mercy is greater than all of our sin. And that if this morning there is any doubt about our confidence that we are yours, this morning, Lord, would you, by your word, remove that doubt with overcoming faith? Because indeed, there is nothing that we can do to please you. But we look to the one who is our mighty fortress, who is the man of your own choosing, Jesus Christ, the God-man. God became human for us. And so we will overcome. We ask for your help, Spirit. Would you lead us? Shine light on your word. Teach us this morning. Change us for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I have been in the last few weeks, um, this sermon is going to take shape in four different parts. And so we're going to see, as usual, an instruction, a problem, a solution, and a resolution. So I think that should be up here in the slide. I didn't grab the clicker, Brian. I'm sorry. (laughs) I totally forgot. So four parts to the message that we're looking at today from 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. The instruction, the problem, the solution, and the resolution. First of all, the instruction in here is coming from what is the unique portion of this passage. Um, the first part we'll talk about here is, is in some ways a melding together of everything that John's already told us in this letter. We're seeing love, we're seeing faith, we're seeing obedience, we're seeing love for God and love for people. These are things that we've hit on a lot. But the instruction that I want to really hit home this morning is that we are being called to overcome the world. And that second phrase, through faith in Christ, is essential. 
But if you separate this for a second and you just consider, we are being called to overcome the world. That's a heavy instruction. We're going to see a problem. There's pressure from the world that crushes our strength. Any hope that we might have to stand on our own two feet in, in, in the face of what the world has to throw at us is dashed to pieces. Well, see, the solution, of course, is in Christ, that he at the cross, at the, re- at the resurrection, um, at the empty tomb, shares the victory over death and sin with us. And that through the new birth that he's afforded, he's purchased for us, we have overcoming faith. It is a guaranteed promise for every believer. Then lastly, a resolution that we ought to root out unbelief, investigate our hearts, look even if under a microscope, as it were, to find even the smallest speck of unbelief so that we can walk in the obedience and love by faith that he calls us to in this passage. So there's the overview of where we're going. Everybody got it? You don't have to have it written down or anything. If you choose to or not, it's up to you. But this is um, our map. Now, who are we talking about here? John, the apostle, of course, is the writer of this letter. He was one of Jesus' closest friends. He loved Jesus. In fact, in his gospel, he refers to himself in what way? Does anybody know? Yeah, the apostle whom Jesus loved. Isn't that wonderful? I know when I first became a believer and I read that, I was like, oh, okay. Somebody thinks they're the favorites. This is the one that Jesus loved. That's not what he means at all. What he means is is that, in one sense, he wasn't even worthy of writing the name John. Because in his mind, it was all all just so off point to use his name in this context of writing the Gospel of John that he had to say, listen, this is the most important thing about me. I am an apostle, yes, but I am one whom Jesus loves. And the truth is, brother and sister in Christ today, that is the most important thing about you as well. So he wrote this letter not to condemn and destroy the church about words of judgment, but rather to empower them, to encourage them, and give them confidence in the one in whom they abide. He wanted to encourage us to abide in Christ, that in him all the confidence that God promises us, no matter what the world does to destroy us, will keep us abiding in Christ, that the Lord will keep all of his own as he continues to this day, even drawing more and more into his family. The weight of the passage, again, is on this idea of overcoming the world through what? Overcoming the world through faith. Thank you. Faith that overcomes the world. Is this an easy thing? Does anything in that idea of overcoming the world strike you as like doable? And let me just throw that on my list for this week of things to do. Going to go grocery shopping. Going to take the kids to the sports thing. Going to watch the game. Going to go do this thing. Get ready for the holidays. Overcome the world. Redecorate the living room. This is a heavy matter that John is calling us to this morning. First of all, we should understand what John means by calling us to overcome the world, right? So let's return just a couple pages back in your Bible, most likely, to chapter 2, verse 14. And I'll, actually, I'm sorry, 15. 1 John, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, for a little, of a, little, bit, little bit of a reminder here. So John tells us in 1 John, chapter 2, Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. 
And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So overcoming the world must have something to do with not loving the world, right? And this makes sense because the rest of our passage today in chapter 5 at the beginning, as you've already heard, love is still a major point here. Love for God, love of God for us, and love for God's people. Last week we read that great passage that God is love. And whoever does not love does not know God because, what? God is love. It is impossible to know God or be born of God and have love be something distant and alien to your heart. So from that resource, we're called to love God by keeping his commandments today. Look at the beginning of this. By this, we know that we love the children. We love God and obey his commandments. How do, I, how do I know if I am a child of God? One of the signs that John has been mentioning previously many times is when we obey his commandments and we love the children of God. Now, are we called to love the church only or the church and the people of the world who do not know Christ? Answer it quickly with the right answer. <laughs> Both, right? Oh my goodness, could we miss something so essential if we take John's exhortation here and say, cool, I think it's way easier to love people who are a part of my church than everybody who's not a part of my church, so I'll just focus on that, because that's a fruit of being born again, right? Well, no, of course not. Just because we see this pointed out specifically here does not remove the fact that part of the reason that we are called to love one another, Jesus said in the Gospel of John, was that they will know, that is the world will know that we are his people by our what? Love. And that in knowing the love of God in God's people, the world might look at it and say, that's different. I want to be a part of that. I want to know more about that. So John calls us in this context to love one another, to obey his commandments. This week he transitions from this test of love to what really becomes a combination of all three tests that we've already seen in this letter. So we've seen a test of truth or faith, same thing. He's using that interchangeably here as he talks about having faith or believing who Christ truly is. So the first question is, do we believe rightly about Jesus? Do we know the right Jesus here? Not to say, do we know everything in the Bible, but do we have the correct person we're putting our faith in? The test of love calls us to ask, do we have love for God and love for God's people and love for the lost? And the last test, the test of obedience, asks the question, do I follow Christ in all of my life or do I perhaps section off pieces that I'd like to keep from him? Am I willing to obey Christ in everything and, lit and walk, as John said again in chapter 2, in a way that is, in the way that he walked, rather? <laughs> so, John's desire for the church is for our faith in Jesus Christ, that is our singular trust in him over anything else in the world, to overcome the world in our lives, that we would decrease our love for the world and increase our love for God above all else. So a couple of years ago at the Gospel Coalition Conference, this pastor and author Kevin DeYoung offered an interesting question here. He presented two sets of words and asked which one people thought better described a Christian. So I'm going to give you that test here right now, too. First of all, he gave these words. Which, so which one better describes a Christian? Wounded, weak, broken strugglers. Or strong, courageous, steadfast overcomers. It's an interesting question. 
I know that some of you, and I know specifically a couple of you, who right now want to stand up from your seats and shout from the rooftops, strong, courageous, steadfast overcomers. That is who we are in Christ. Also, I read it in the passage, so that must be what we're referring to here. I know others of you who perhaps wouldn't stand up, but in your hearts are saying, I'm feeling like I'm lining more up with this idea of wounded, weak, broken, and struggling. We'll return to this towards the end here, but for now, it's a trick question. Keep that in your minds. Let me share two examples from this past week of how we understand faith. Um, Because again, this is what we're looking at. We're talking about overcoming the world by our faith in Christ. And so there were two things that kind of popped up to me in the news this past week that I thought helped me kind of think about a couple different ways that the world looks at faith or looks at this confidence and this victorious mindset. One comes from the Cleveland Browns wide receiver, which must mean that he receives something from a wide position on the football field. I don't really know a whole lot about football. But I also want to take this point to uh, remind you that there's more than Lord of the Rings quotes up my sleeve. So, football, okay? Listen to how this uh, wide receiver, his name is Odell Beckham Jr., responded to a question about COVID. I don't think COVID can get to me. I don't think it's going to enter this body. I don't want no parts of it. I don't want no, it don't want no parts of me. It's a mutual respect. Now, I don't know anything about this guy at all. This popped up because I followed ESPN on Facebook like years ago. But the quote really stuck out to me for a second here. And I don't know, he might have been being a little bit facetious, but whether he was being honest or, or perhaps a little bit funny here, I think it really does reflect a little bit of perhaps what many of us feel in our hearts about something like COVID or other challenges in the world. The second example comes from a much bigger news story of the week. So Pope Francis made a statement supporting the idea of civil unions for LGBTQ couples. The Washington Post said that Francis's comment does nothing to alter Catholic doctrine, which is kind of funny because I thought that's what a pope could do. Um, Anyway, but it represents a remarkable shift for a church that has fought against LGBT legal rights. So the issue itself aside, Roman Catholicism has to reckon with a conflict. Do we act and believe based on what the pope says or what we see in the Bible? Since it's the end of Reformation Month and I have taken no opportunity whatsoever to address that, I'm going to right now and hopefully clarify a distinction between um, Catholicism and Protestantism. And, And we would fall under the category of Protestantism in here, evangelicalism, as it's more so referred to today. But the difference, the main difference between Catholicism and Protestantism really comes down to what we understand about God's word and the nature of it. Catholicism is held for as long as it's been around, that God's people create God's word. You might see where that comes from. We're looking at what? The letter of John. John's involved in the writing of this, right? Whereas the Protestant Reformation, though, was founded on the truth that God's word creates God's people. So just reversing it. That's what Mark Dever kind of summed it up with. I thought that was helpful. So in this case, regarding the Pope and regarding his stance on civil unions for non-traditional marriage, the question came to my mind, has, is this an evidence of faith overcoming the world? Or has the world overcome the claims to be, what claims to be faith in a God who tells us that he has spoken clearly to us in his word? 
So one side wants to emphasize the confident, strong overcomer. I'll take COVID and anything else anybody throws at me. And this is a football player who is going to play football for a few years and then he's going to retire. He's not going to be fit or young enough to do it anymore. And then on the other side, we're talking about the guy who is the head of an entire movement that's been around for thousands of years, very long time. And he's seemingly buckling under the pressure of the world. Very interesting comparison. And it makes us have to ask ourselves too, how do I address this idea of overcoming the world by my faith in light of what I see in scripture and what I'm called to do? God is calling us this morning to overcome the world by our faith in Christ. This is our instruction. Holding to what he has said. Humbly leaning on him above all things. Loving him, loving his people, obeying his commands. And walking with him, abiding in him. If you're visiting with us this morning or if you're online or in person, regardless of whichever way, some of this may not make any sense what we're about to talk about. And some things in the sermon and in communion as well, and that's okay. We are glad you're here. We want you to be here. And if you have questions that pop up in your minds, don't let those questions go unanswered um, by the time the service is over. But for now, let's move right into the problem that comes when we think about overcoming the world. So here's the problem. Pressure from the world crushes our strength. Look at verse 3 of our passage today. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Got it. If I love God, I'm going to do what? Keep his commandments. And if I'm keeping his commandments, that shows that I what? Love God. Excellent. You got it. So John's thinking is circular throughout this whole book. Okay, it's kind of funny moving from Judges to 1 John because in Judges we talked about how there was a spiral of the story of this narrative moving downward and downward, getting worse and worse and worse. And in some way, it's almost like I did it on purpose. I wanted to move to 1 John because it kind of reverses that. And the spiral goes up and it includes all the things that we've been talking about. And so the point you come to today and you're like, what could we possibly say that's new this morning? Well, really not much. Because John's already established it. And so the truth of it should only become greater in our hearts as we see over and over again. But here is this point in the second part of verse 3 that immediately when I think about what the problem is when we come to obeying his commandments and overcoming by faith, I think the problem exists right here. His commandments are not burdensome. Well, hold on. That doesn't sound like a problem, does it? It sounds like an encouragement. It sounds like he's telling us, don't be afraid to walk in obedience. These commandments are not burdensome. You are in Christ. Those things are true. But when we have our eyes away from Christ, when we choose to abide or rather make our home in other things in the world, and then we look at the idea of the commandments of God and obeying them, they are burdensome, aren't they? I mean, in truth, you can see even in the New Testament and, the, and certainly in the Old Testament, that there's, there's evidence. I mean, God himself admits you're not going to be able to obey these commands. They're too much. They're too heavy. John is showing us how God's commandments are not burdensome because our tendency is to think that they are. We think that when it comes to doing what God calls us to do, it will be impossible. And truly, when it comes to this title, this instruction today, overcome the world. We're not talking about world conquest here in the sense of, you know, the Roman Empire or anything like that. We're talking about the pressures of the world that come on you day by day, and God's calling you to overcome them. 
You know, it might be easy for us to veil this struggle that we have, um, even in a very Christian-sounding perspective. We might say things like, hey, I'm under grace now. I'm not under the law, so I don't need to worry about God's commands. Christ has fulfilled the commands for me, right? So that's good. So I'm not under the law. Paul said it. I'm under grace. So don't I just get to throw out the whole Old Testament? Okay, maybe I don't throw it out. But, you know, when I read it, I just kind of remind myself, this isn't for you. This was for them. Those poor losers that didn't have it figured out. If we take a stance that says that in our Christian life, we have no need to obey God or follow his commandments or look to his word, then my friends, we are falling into a terrible theological perspective called antinomianism. It's basically the idea that there are no moral repercussions for our actions as long as we already trust in Christ. It's a claim that the commands and indeed the word of God itself is a burden, an excessive pressure that we don't need to worry about. So while John is telling us the commandments of God are not burdensome, the world, our flesh, and the enemy are telling us, yeah, but I think that they are. So John's addressing our misunderstanding. He doesn't want us to disregard Jesus. He doesn't want us to disregard the word. This is the overarching goal of the world in the spiritual realm. Look at um, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. This is a very, very popular passage um, talking about another one of the key themes here that we won't get to address the way I'd like to in this passage, about the new birth. But Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 regarding where we were before we knew Jesus. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." When we talk about overcoming the world as believers in Christ, we're talking about overcoming something that the whole of mankind has been enslaved to for thousands of years. But don't worry, the commandments of God are not burdensome. I mean, we got to admit, our first reaction to this is, that sounds like a whole lot of stuff that I can't do. Look at at how the enemy is described here. The prince of the power of the air. He's the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Well, who are the sons of disobedience? Well, we used to be those. If we're in Christ, we're no longer that. But we were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, just like John warned us in chapter 2. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There is no good medium and bad people apart from Jesus. We are all bad. We've all broken God's law. We are all, like the rest of mankind, children of wrath, deserving judgment from God. So why is it that John needs to tell us that the commandments are not burdensome? Because the world, our flesh, and the devil tell us otherwise. John Calvin, a French reformer, again, Reformation Month, Um, said that the world here includes whatever is working against the Spirit of God. So if there's anything in your life that is a voice that says, hey, you, you know, you don't really need to pray right now. I know you didn't read your Bible today. Don't worry about it. It's okay. Church happens every Sunday. You can miss it. It's fine. Sleep in. Those kind of voices and billions of others, other logics and thought systems, are all working against the spirit of God in your life, that who wants to draw you to the people of God, to his word, into the presence of the Lord. And yet everything else in the world is working against you. That's not to say that when you walk out these doors, 
Satan himself and all of his goons pinpoint you as one person and say, we're going to get them, that one person. But because you have distinguished yourself from the rest of mankind, now there is this pressure. There is an even greater pressure. Maybe it's just better to say that we notice what the pressure truly is. Because, of course, Satan has been always trying to lead people away from the Lord. But now, if we're in Christ, he can't do anything to stop us from being in Christ. But he can sure slow us down. He can sure stop us from moving in that regard, right? He can make God's word and the life of the Christian look like a burden, if he wants to, if we'll listen to his voice as opposed to the Holy Spirit. And the problem we need to face today is that regardless of whatever point in your Christian journey you are, you're facing this pressure. It probably looks different than it did when you first became a believer. It might be greater. Wouldn't that make sense? This person's been following Christ for X amount of years or decades. We need to hit them harder. Because they know how important prayer is. They know how important it is to be with God's people. They know how important and impacting it is to take the Lord's Supper together. The world is putting pressure on us and telling us that the pressure is actually from the Lord when it's not. So John Stott is an Anglican minister um, and one of the major evangelical voices in the 20th century. He wrote in his commentary on this passage that we face three different pressures. So you might want to write this down. This might be helpful for you as you think about what these pressures are. The world that we're called to be overcomers of puts pressure on us morally, intellectually, and physically. In a way, these three pressures correspond to the three confidences that John has been giving us this whole time. So consider this. John gives us, as signs of our abiding in Christ, true faith, which the world gives pressure on by the intellectual pressure. So the questioning of, is the Bible really reliable? Haven't you seen, look at these fossils. I think the world is actually millions of years old. Doesn't that mean that the Bible's no good? How, we've never seen God. We don't really know that God exists. Look at the gospel. This is so ridiculous. Don't follow a, a, a crucified savior. And then he rose from the dead. Well, if he's still alive today, where is he? Intellectual pressures that meet the test and the sign of faith in our lives. Secondly, true love is met with the moral pressure of this world. Like our example earlier. How could it be loving for us to tell somebody that the way they want to live their life is wrong? Isn't that cruel? Isn't that inconsiderate? Isn't that inconsistent with Jesus? The world puts moral pressure on us by saying, don't look to the morals that God's word shows you, but create your own because you have to adapt to where you are. And then lastly, the world puts physical pressure on us that that tries to put pressure on our acts of obedience the working of obedience in our heart that says, I want to physically shape my life around what Christ has done for me. And yet the world says, hey, actually, I want you to do these other things. I'm going to give you some distractions, even some blatant, obvious sins that might be stopping us from walking in obedience to the Lord. So what pressure from the world are you feeling this morning? Can you identify it? Because if you can, I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, you can overcome it by faith in Christ. Maybe the world is pressuring you to think like Odell thinks about COVID. Faith doesn't give us an excuse to be arrogant, beloved. Sometimes what we see as signs of spiritual maturity is actually spiritual immaturity in some cases. It can actually just be arrogance. Maybe you feel the same pressure that the Pope felt this past week. True faith in Christ doesn't make us so unloving as to neglect truth for the sake of tolerance. 
It's a very, very tricky one. It would look very loving for us to look at everything in the world and say, it's okay, do what you want. Live the way that makes you happy. God's word tells us that living the way that makes us happy, if that's our goal, it's going to lead to destruction. God doesn't want that for us, and God's people have to abide by that as well. You know, whoever you'd like to see in the Oval Office next year, which we're getting really close to, right? I think that's this week. Or no, sorry, next week, right? It's getting close. Whoever it is that you'd like to see become our next president, it's easy to give into the pressure of the world and let your heart fill with hatred for the opposition, right? I mean, let's be honest, you've been doing it. You picked your guy and you automatically hate the other guy. Half of your reason for picking this guy is the fact that this guy is terrible, whoever they are. If you don't like Donald Trump, I have to ask you, when was the last time you prayed for the guy? He's been president for four years. He very well may be president for another four years. Don't like Joe Biden? Whether you like him or not, and in some way, perhaps, maybe even if you don't vote for him, he may in fact become the president next year. When was the last time you prayed for him? You know, it'd be very easy because, let's, let's face it, both of these guys are clowns sometimes, right? It'd be really easy for us to just take a simple fact that when we get online and we see one of these guys talking, and it's just so laughable sometimes. What if you said, every time I laugh at one of these guys, I'm going to also take a moment to pray for them. Not trying to be like weird religious about this. I'm just saying, let's embrace reality here. God's word calls us to pray for our governing officials. That can be a pressure when we think, I don't like the governing official. A lot of you don't like some of the more local governing officials right now. And I see that because of social media. It's okay to have opinions. We got to recognize the difference between what we see in somebody's policies and in their actions and their behavior and recognize that God is calling us to pray for them in a loving way. We, so don't go home and say, you know, just fill in the blank, Joe Biden or Donald Trump or whatever. Lord, I pray for this guy that you would just do blank. So t- this is not what the Lord's calling us to. But I hope perhaps you even feel the burden in that. Loving your enemies, praying for your governing officials. They feel burdensome because the world is putting pressure on us not to act by faith, love, and obedience, but to create our own view of morality, truth, and love. So we are indeed under pressure. What hope of solution could we have today? It's up there. You've seen it already. Our solution is in Christ sharing his victory with us. That through the new birth that he's purchased for us, we have overcoming faith. The world wants us to believe that his commandments are burdensome. And morally, the world calls into question how God can be loving and yet let people do as fr- do it free- feel free to do as they please. If God really loves, wouldn't they stop? Wouldn't he stop these things? Intellectually, the world is constantly throwing reasons not to believe Jesus. Physically, the world is calling us to do whatever we like, just like everyone else. How could any of us overcome by a faith we come up with on our own? Don't walk away from here thinking, okay, I'm going to figure out this faith thing. I'm going to create it in my heart, and then I'm going to overcome the world. You can't do it. There's nothing in us that can overcome the world. We have to lean on Christ. When John talks about our faith that overcomes the world, he's talking about something that has happened to us more than something that we actually do. Look back at verse 1 of chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of him. The solution that is found in Christ for us today is the fact that what he has been victorious over death and sin 
and has resulted in is this new birth that we can have. Did any of you have a say when you were born? I mean, were you born and you say, you know, I kind of want to go back. Or, I mean, think about that very famous phrase that you hear in movies all the time. I didn't ask to be born. Right? It's very true. None of us have asked to be born. And so our solution cannot be found in ourselves. It has to be found in the person who caused this new birth to happen in us. This is what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You must be born again. And faith certainly has a connection to the new birth, but it doesn't create the new birth. The new birth happens in us, and faith is an evidence of it. So look at our passage one more time. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Like we've looked at passages before, we have to put these in proper order. Who is the one who's been born of God? The one who believes that Jesus is the Christ. Is it be born again by believing in Jesus Christ? No. But this morning, I will call you, believe in Jesus Christ. And if you can respond positively to that command from God's word, it's because you've been born again. It's not because God said, oh, they got it. All right, new birth coming up. No. He says, I'm going to give the new birth to this person, and they will believe because of that. Now, here's the good news. Does God only look to the people who deserve new birth? No, he doesn't. He's not a respecter of persons the way that we are, James tells us. But in fact, the wind blows here and there. We don't know where it came from or where it's going. And Jesus said, that's like the Spirit. The fact that you're here this morning is great evidence that the Lord is working in you. Don't fall off. Because you're here. Not because, not because you said, I'm going to give up an hour and a half of my time to come. to No, the Lord is sovereign over all things, and you're not here by accident. And I, because I believe in the sovereignty of God, I'll tell you, you're not even here by your own choice alone. Choice is part of it. You do need to respond. You do need to act. But God is sovereign over all things, and you're here because he wants you to be here more than anything else. So when we talk about faith and the new birth and regeneration as this, this act of the Holy Spirit bringing that new birth in us, what we're talking about here is this Latin phrase that theologians use called the ordo salutis, which means the order of salvation. It deals with faith and obedience and the new birth. And Sinclair Ferguson is a Scottish theologian, and um, he explains it in this way. He says that the way in which we know we have been born again is because we believe. I think that's the best way to put it um, in light of what John said here. He says, faith comes as a result of regeneration a result of the new birth, the work of the Holy Spirit. He has come to abide in us. He applies the new life that Christ won at the cross to our hearts and makes us new. And this all happens when you hear the gospel. So today, if you are not in Christ, if you're not a believer, the Lord is calling to you and saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. They could do that. And if you respond to that positively, you say, yes, Lord, it's because the Lord is working in your heart. And why do we point all of this out? Because again, this faith that overcomes the world is not something that we come up with on our own, but rather something that's gifted to us, Paul says in John chapter 2. So take another illustration. Kids, you've been doing really great. And I'm going to ask you today, if you've ever been asked as, by your parents to wake up your brother or sister, have they ever asked you to do that? Go upstairs and wake up your brother or sister. You're probably like the first one awake in the house, right? <laughs> And you go up there, and you go there and say, Oh, dear brother and sister, the light of a new day has shone upon us. It's time for you to waken from your slumber and join me for breakfast. Every other sibling will hit you with their pillow. 
They just keep sleeping. It's hard. So that's okay. This is helpful. This is good because when we don't want to wake up, we're not trying to wake up. We're not even aware of the idea of waking up until a voice comes into our life and says, wake up, right? And kids, and those of us who are older than being kids, but can remember, if you have siblings, the great blessing of that instruction. Go wake up your brother and sister. What does that mean? I get to yell at them. That's the only way it's going to work. And I'm obeying mom and dad, so it's okay. Right? It's a wonderful opportunity. And I'm telling you, this is what the new birth does in us. God speaks to our hearts and says, wake up. John Piper used this illustration in regards to the raising of Lazarus. When Jesus came and said, roll the stone away, everybody's like, no, he's been dead for four days. It's going to smell really bad. Don't do that. He, there's, no, there's no hope. We can't do anything. And what did Jesus do? Did he pull out his magic wand, perform the magical ceremony to awaken Lazarus from death? No. He simply said, what? Somebody knows? Yeah. Did he whisper it, though? Lazarus, come out when you're ready. I'll give you a second here. Don't make me look bad. Did he whisper it or did he say, Lazarus, come out? And when Lazarus heard that, did he say, I wonder if I should obey? I wonder if, I'm, I'm going to think about this for a little bit. No, he, again, like your brother or sister, sprang out of bed and said, whoa, what's going on? One minute I was in heaven, now I'm back here, right? Pretty amazing thing. But this is, again, a great illustration for us to understand what God does for us in the new birth. Because Jesus died on the cross, we have new life. The opposite of what Jesus endured has been granted to us. And that new life starts with birth. And so whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And verse John 2, 17 that we read earlier said that the world is passing away along with its desires and all of its pressures. They're all going to leave. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. What is the will of God? Wake up! Nobody's sleeping in this sermon, huh? That's the will of God. Hear his voice. Walk with him. See what great love the Lord has given to us that we should be called sons and daughters of God. Beloved church, the one who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Look again at verse 4. Everyone who has been born again overcomes the world. We already share in the victory of Jesus. This is a present tense happening right now, continual action. It doesn't ever lose its effect. If you put your faith in Christ today, then a hundred years from now, if somehow you live that long, your faith will be just as new and just as effective and just as powerful, not because you've come up with a great formula for it, but because that faith come, came from the Lord, not from yourself. Nothing will be able to separate us. Romans 8, 38 and 39, one of my favorite passages, I have to put it in here. Because Paul says, after talking about the wonderful work that the Spirit does in us, he says, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing in creation. That includes you, brother and sister. If you are in Christ, you can't up and leave him. You can't unawake from this truth. Remember Kevin DeYoung's question from the beginning? What are we as Christians? Are we wounded, weak, broken strugglers? Or are we strong, courageous, steadfast overcomers? Well, if you know your Bibles well enough, you know that all of those words are used to describe Christians at some point, even in the New Testament. We struggle. 
The pressure of the world is too much sometimes. We're wounded. There are things that plague our hearts and minds and keep recurring over and over and over again. We are weak and broken. We need to return daily to his word, to fellowship with him through prayer and with each other to receive the strength to be strong, courageous, steadfast overcomers. We need to live in the balance of our deep, deep need for Christ to abide more and more in him so that all the promises of his word that say that he who is the object of our faith has won an incredible victory for us at the cross will be true. And beloved, remember, this is the only way we overcome. Verse five, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? The answer to John's question at the end of this is nobody. Who overcomes except for believing in Christ? Nobody. You have no hope apart from Jesus, but you have such a perfect and sure hope in Christ. And so our testimony is much like an old hymn. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. So here's your resolution today. Root out unbelief from your heart. Walk in obedience and love by faith. All these things that are talked about in the beginning of this. We know we're the children of God when we love and obey his commandments. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Uh, Further up, I, I missed this one. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. All these things that God's calling us to in his word are able to happen because of the faith that he grants to you because of the new birth because of what he's done in your life to make you new whether you feel that today or not christian okay it might be a low day it might have been a low week it might have been a low month but if you will return to his word you will find this faith and this great power to overcome all things revelation 12 11, a great passage you're probably familiar with it they have, over, they have conquered him, that is the enemy, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. They have overcome. They did not give in to the desires of the world, but they said, I have a greater desire in Christ. The reason that that burden of the law is no longer a burden is because it turns into a delight. It turns, in, it turns into a joy. Think of that first time or maybe a recent time that you've looked at God's word and you've said, wow, I needed that. I needed to look at what God had to say to me today. And think about the fact that perhaps some of you are saying, don't got that in my recent memory. Look to it today. Recognize that what he is saying to you today, again, just as John intended, just as the Holy Spirit inspiring and writing through the Apostle John intends for you to be overcomers and encouraged to be victorious, to be confident in your faith. That's what he wants for you. If you go to him knowing that's what he wants, he's going to give it to you. Because he gives grace to the humble, but he rejects the proud. Don't go to God and say, all right, Lord, prove it to me. I'm ready. Show me that all this stuff is true. God doesn't have time or really a care for that kind of attitude. He cares about the person, but that attitude does not access the grace of God. So let this be your resolution, not your efforts. When I talk about rooting out unbelief in your heart, I'm not talking about you becoming the Sherlock Holmes of all spiritual sanctification. I'm talking about you recognizing that God wants to reveal sin in your hearts so that you can confess it and so that you can abide more closely with him. I don't feel close to God today, you might say. If that's what you're saying, maybe there's something you need to confess. Maybe it's not a specific sin, but maybe it's just the fact that you've just been ignoring him. And let me tell you this. We, when we get annoyed, when we get ignored, we get annoyed, don't we? You've been ignoring me. You haven't answered my text message. You haven't been talking to me. You haven't asked how my day was, all those kind of things. But the Lord, when we return to him after having ignored him, has nothing but grace for you. 
Your sins are many. So are mine. But his mercy is more. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you this morning that we have a great hope in Christ. Lord, I pray specifically right now, knowing that perhaps somebody in hearing my voice doesn't know this great hope, doesn't know this confidence and this victory that Jesus has won for them. Lord, would you reveal that to their hearts? Would you show your great overcoming love for them? Show them that they have nothing that they need to bring to you for your approval. Show them that you have approved of Christ and Christ is willing to be the substitute for them. Lord, cause us to wake up wherever we are. Wake up from our pride. Wake up from our tolerance or our our, uh, apathy towards right and wrong. Wake up from whatever the pressures of this world are putting on us. Recognize what that pressure is and face it with the truth of your word today. Because we know that your truth, your word is greater than all things. You said in your word in the book of Psalms, the psalmist wrote by inspiration of the Holy Spirit that you have exalted above all else your name and your word. So there is nothing that can touch these two things. The name of Jesus is the name by which we are saved and the word of God is the means of us embracing that further, abiding more closely with you. Help us, Lord, to cling to you this morning. Help us in our efforts to abide, in our efforts to be victorious and overcome the world, to know that we cannot by our efforts, but we can by the efforts of Christ. Let us rest in that this morning, particularly as we come to the table of communion, Father. We thank you that you have poured out the blood of Jesus. You've broken his body for us. Lord, this is what your word says in Isaiah 53. It pleased him to crush him. Lord, you were not distant at the cross. You were not simply standing aside so that the world could throw all that pressure on Jesus, but you yourself made Jesus the atoning sacrifice on our behalf because that's what we deserved. The fact that you poured out your wrath on your son is more than we can bear this morning, but we recognize that you have done it in sure confidence of his victory over death and sin. And he's risen today so that we might walk in victory as well. We ask you to establish us in these things in Jesus' name. Amen.